you will join me this morning. We have two passages of Scripture we'll be looking at. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, the title of our sermon is Men of Good Repute. And our key words for our worshipers and training are deacon, serve, and church. Now, church life, for the most part, is fairly routine. God has designed it that way for good reason. There's a pattern. It's a consistent pattern. It happens week in and week out with general regularity in our normal lives, and we should expect that to be the case in the church as well. It's a blessing from God that we, uh, we can have some expectations, and yet we know that from time to time uh, we will come as the life of the church together, and there will be seasons that are unique, sometimes unique for good reasons, sometimes for not so good reasons, but thankfully for Redeemer Baptist Church, by God's grace, we can rejoice and give thanks to God that over the past several years, the unique seasons that we have enjoyed as the body of Christ periodically have been seasons of rejoicing. We've come through a lot of changes over the years, moving to be more aligned with historic Christianity in terms of our confession of faith and our practice as a body of Christ. And that has included changes in the way we structure the church and our practices as a church and our ministries and our, in our leadership. We did all of that uh, in light of what all of the so-called uh, leading church experts say is a surefire way to split a church And we changed our name, and we changed our covenant, we changed our bylaws and our policies, and we did all of that at the same time, not only without problem, but with encouraging excitement from the body of Christ on the whole. We recovenanted together, and we have a renewed commitment to live together in peace and in unity as a body of Christ. We did that almost a year ago already, submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ guided by His Word, working together as the people of God in one body and using our spiritual gifts for mutual edification. And one of the ways you can see the health of a local church is to see how long God puts and keeps leadership in place. And I'm not saying that as a testimony to the leadership, but as a testimony to the church. And you've had the same elders and deacons now, many of us going on double digits in our time of serving this church. And and that means you've been very patient along the way. And you walk with us through mistakes and through challenges and through times we weren't exactly sure how to proceed. So uh, so we, we might have tried something that we shouldn't have tried and, and it didn't work out the best possible way. And so we've had to change courses and you've walked through us uh, with us through difficult times and You've trusted us to make wise decisions when we've had to make big adjustments. You've given us the benefit of the doubt, and we've screwed up, and you've come alongside, and you've prayed with us and for us, and you've encouraged us, and you've served us well. And and that's not just about good leadership. That says a lot more about a healthy church body. That says a lot more about the work of God in the lives of His people, about people who are truly transformed by the gospel, applying all of the implications of the gospel to everyday life. And we see the work of the Holy Spirit at work in each and every person's life. Now, another way to see the health of a local church is when there is new leadership. Not necessarily replacing the old, but but coming into and alongside to make it stronger and better. As churches grow, and by God's grace, that's been our experience for a while now, there is a continuing need for more people to serve the body of Christ. And so we trust that God will make known to us who these men are, how their gifts are uniquely given to the body of Christ according to the direction of Scripture. And so we should have an expectation that as the church grows, from time to time we should also see men who are being qualified by God to be pastors and elders and to be deacons, showing their abilities and their gifts in the ways that they already serve the body of Christ. We, We should also see men who are developing hearts to plant churches Men and women who have a heart for the nations, who want to give their lives uh, to uh, the work of missions. 
Uh, Men and women who are finding their roles right here within the body of Christ in the normal everyday functioning in various ways they can use their gifts here in teaching Sunday school and serving as small group leaders or leading Bible studies or doing projects and, and ministries of service. All of these things are going on and all of these things take all of the gifts of all of the body. And if you've been in our uh, one of our Sunday school classes the last few months, we've been talking about and learning that. It's so vitally important because these are the signs of a healthy local body. Now, I, I would be... Uh, It would be foolish to say that everything is perfect. It's not. There's always room to grow and be strengthened. But there's a difference between being uh, being healthy and needing to be strengthened and being unhealthy and lethargic. But a healthy body still needs to be strengthened. It still needs to build muscle and to and to eat well and stay into shape. That, that's a good thing. That's, that's the difference uh, between one who is continuing to be strengthened and grow and, and do the things that we're supposed to do to keep things built up versus one that is lazy and lethargic and thinks something like exercise is directly from the devil. We are healthy, and we thank God for that. We are a healthy local church, but we can always work to be strengthened, and that's a good thing. And we should always be thankful for that and remember to never forget that. It is by God's grace alone that we are here together, doing what we do in life together, unified and loving one another in the ways that we are, because apart from God's grace, all of this would fall apart in a second. Trust me, I I get it. It takes a lot of grace from God to listen to me from week in and week out. I understand that. And apart from God's grace, all of this would fall apart. And so with that being said, it's good and it's right and it's a healthy thing for us to come together this morning and to celebrate a unique season in the life of Redeemer Baptist Church. It's a time worthy of our taking a break from our normal pattern to give thanks to God for raising up and installing new leadership in the body of Christ and and doing so not only without division or disagreement, but with great unanimity and joy within the body. So today is a little bit different. Today we are doing things a little bit different, all fitting with the Scriptures to do what God calls us to do by identifying, appointing, installing, and laying hands on and praying for two additional men to serve as deacons in Redeemer Baptist Church. So what I want us to do this morning is to look at the office of deacon within the local church afresh. I want us to to look at the two main sections of Scripture that talk about the diaconate, and we will see the biblical establishment of the office of deacon, and second, we will look at the qualifications of a deacon. And along the way, we will look at their duties and responsibilities within the body of Christ, and then in the end, we will receive a charge as a church. We will charge our two candidates and lay hands on and pray for them as they are installed and ordained to the office of deacon. So let's first look in Acts chapter 6. We will begin in verse 1. If you want to read along from the Blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 914. Acts 6, beginning in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And look at verse 6. It says, These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, it is important for us to understand what had gone on since from the time of the ascension of Christ into heaven to the point that we are looking at here in the history of the church. The gospel was being preached with significant power, and people were being saved day by day, sometimes in the thousands in a single day. The church was obviously growing significantly 
very quickly in ways that the church hasn't grown since then. There certainly have been revivals throughout the history of the church uh, over the past 2,000 years, but nothing of the significance of what we see right from the beginning in the preaching of the apostles. So the apostles are going around, they're preaching the gospel, they're planting churches, people are being saved by the hundreds, sometimes thousands, churches being established with pastors and elders as they're being appointed, but there were so many people and there were so many things going on at the time that everything became overwhelming. And the church, very early on, you can see in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, they had a conviction of the importance of caring for its members. They saw, first and foremost, most important in terms of who they were to care for was the body of Christ, their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they were joyfully giving to meet the needs of others. And what we see in the early church is that they were even taking extra possessions and selling them and giving the proceeds to the apostles to distribute to the needs of the church. Things were going very, very well. Now, Something any pastor wants, and it was absolutely true of the apostles, is to have unity within the church. And anything that might threaten that unity, they want to deal with immediately. They want to find a biblical solution and do whatever possible to make sure that unity is maintained, if possible. So as the church was growing, the unity of the church was being threatened, and that's to be expected. We all always have to be mindful of that. As the church grows, Unity becomes uh, somewhat more difficult in a lot of ways. We have to always be mindful of that. But in the early days of the church, unity was being threatened because some of the Greek-speaking Jewish widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. They were probably having food distributed to them, maybe some allowance of monies for basic living expenses. They were being overlooked and that needed to be fixed. Now, we shouldn't speculate as to the reasons why they were being neglected. We can't see. There could be all sorts of reasons. I think what is fair to say is it's not because they were Hellenists. It's not because they were uh, Greek-speaking Jews. It probably had a lot more to do with the concentration of people in a specific area. There was not enough in one area to go, and so it wasn't being distributed from another area. We just don't know all the reasons why. So the ministry of the apostles had grown rapidly. There was a very real possibility that all of this could have gotten off track and they would have stopped doing what they were officially appointed to do uh, by Christ and pick up all of these other things. So they, they had to make sure that this problem was being dealt with however they could as to maintain the unity. But they also realized that they were not the ones to do it. They were called by God to focus their attention on prayer for the body of Christ and for the preaching and teaching in all of the various ways that preaching and teaching happens. And remember, for the apostles especially, this this wasn't in one church, in one small community. This was numerous churches in different places. They were traveling around. They were following up with the churches. They were appointing uh, elders. They were appointing and training up the leadership. They were writing letters to keep things on course. It became very busy very quickly. So they had to call on the church to appoint men. And we see in verse 3, these men should be of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom to tend to the physical needs of the Christians. This was the official beginning of the office of deacon. And it seems evident that to be a deacon involved a number of different functions in terms of serving others, especially, most especially in giving relief to the poor. So when we think deacon, we should think first and foremost of one who has the responsibility to help and to serve others, has a responsibility to take care of the needs primarily of other believers. Even more specifically, they're primarily responsible for the relief of the sick and the poor and for the practical needs of the church, depending on what goes on in any local body, taking responsibility for making sure that things like administration and and maintenance are taken care of, uh, that the the church members uh, and their needs in their homes are taken care of. Now, Now, take note, the point of the office is to ensure that all of the people within the church are cared for, but 
the primary work of the apostles and the pastors and uh, elders and churches today would not be hindered by those things because now someone is appointed to lead in those areas. And, and so practically, what we see coming together is the elders and deacons are working alongside one another like left and right hands. Elders uh, specializing and leading with prayer and teaching and preaching and, uh, and, and decision-making within the church. Deacons specializing in leading by their works of service. Both offices are offices of leadership, but the leadership is in different areas of service within the body of Christ. Now, unfortunately, many local church bodies have confused the offices, and what ends up happening is that the office of the diaconate becomes sort of an office of a de facto elder. And so the responsibilities of uh, deacons are, end up going unmet, and so there's no clear lines of authority and structure, and eventually those God has gifted to lead as pastors and elders no longer have the authority that the, they are given by the Bible. They essentially work for the deacons. That's not what we see here in the text. And vice versa, the, the, the elders should not be doing the work of the deacons, just like the deacons should not be doing the work of the elders. There's a clear line of division of labor. It's, it's the deacons taking on the responsibilities uh, that the elders are not called to take on, but still need leadership. And that frees everyone up to do more effectively what they're called and gifted to do. And so the church doesn't become lopsided. We shouldn't be a church that, that, uh, that proclaims and teaches and has the gift of teaching more heavily emphasized than our responsibilities of serving and caring for others, and vice versa. Not just to be known as a church who serves and loves others and cares for everyone's needs, but, man, the teaching is just, is just not there. We need not be lopsided. And, and so there's a very important reality here that we need to make sure we're always focusing on, and that is that we must all know and understand that we have been given gifts by God, and we have callings, and within those callings, we use those gifts to do what we are appointed to do. And the more dogmatic a church is about that, the more a local church ensures that their leadership roles and responsibilities are well-defined and it functions better as a church, knowing uh, that the teaching is being focused on, the body is being protected from false teaching, and the believers are being cared for and their needs are being met accordingly. So the deacons were appointed. And what we see in scriptures is that they began right away fulfilling their calling, doing good works to minister to the needs of the church to fulfill the commands of God. And notice then in Acts chapter 6 that the calling and service of the deacons is closely tied to what we see right, right in verse 7. This neat thing happens. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now listen, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, was a very careful writer. He wrote this in a way that he did for a reason. He's showing us here that once the apostles were more freed up to teach and preach, and the good works and services of the deacons were, was ongoing in their leadership, the works of these two offices united together functioned to produce a God-glorifying situation in which God was pleased to work in the hearts of unrepentant sinners to remove the scales from their eyes so that they might see and believe that the Lord is good. And God was adding to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. It's no, it's no small thing that we see in this way, that when the church is properly ordered, that God blesses the work of that church. Now, the diaconate is one of the main avenues that the Lord uses to build bridges between His church and the world. Deacons are the first line of ministry when it comes to extending the mercy of the church and to the community. And when people see the church, 
being the church, oftentimes the first thing they see, if it's not in the context of the gathering of the church in worship, it's seeing those things that the, the deacons are called to lead in. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see what? That they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who's in heaven. And so when the world sees the church doing what the church is called to do in terms of loving and serving one another and extending that love and service to our neighbors, oftentimes the world is baffled. What is going on with these people? Why do they live together in that way? Why do they care about other people in the way that they care about them? In the early 4th century, the Roman emperor Julian regretted the progress of Christianity because it pulled away from devotion to the Roman gods. He wrote this in a letter. He said, atheism, and by the way, when he says atheism, he's talking about Christianity because Christians were not worshiping the Roman gods. And so Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar, and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Wow, what's, what's going on here? Well, The work that is being led by the deacons in the church is being done in such a way that the emperor himself has to admit those Christians are doing what we should be doing and we're not doing. And so as a result, people are seeing that. They're giving glory to God and they're becoming Christians. God is using his church in that way. And this is a real historical example of that. Now, we know that opportunities to serve the poor will always be present, and it was Jesus himself who told us that the poor will always be among us. And so it takes wise, calculated leadership by those who are gifted especially to lead and to properly steward resources given by us from God in order to fulfill our calling, doing all that God commands in the mercy of the church and our community. But notice, we're talking here about deacons leading in these areas, which doesn't always mean doing all of the work in these areas. Every believer ought to be working to develop an eye to see the needs of others, to see needs that can be met by others, and to see who's in any kind of special adversity, and then working to see how we can help them through that adversity, and how to work as ambassadors of Christ in the context of mercy. This, of course, is driven by our knowledge and our understanding that Christ has redeemed us as servant, uh, to do servant deeds and love as a result of the atonement of Christ on our behalf. Christ has given himself for us, and so in terms of service, we are called to give ourselves to others. Now, Romans 15.8, in this regard, describes Jesus himself as a deacon. Now, it's translated often as a servant of the Jews, but he's, he's being described as a deacon in order that by his death he might purchase the Gentiles for his kingdom. So he is the great deacon, humbling himself to the utmost in love for the sake of our redemption, giving of himself, setting aside his own personal priorities for the sake of others. And in his self-sacrifice, Jesus serves us by dying for us. And so it would be strange then if the message of the cross was ever fully disassociated from our loving deeds to demonstrate the love that Jesus showed in dying for the world. The ultimate purpose for God's doing good works through his church is to pave the way for the proclamation of the gospel. We want all that we do ultimately to lead to the proclamation of the reality, of the truth, that Jesus Christ came into the world and lived a perfect life that we could not live, fulfilling the full law of God because not one of us can fulfill that law. But that is God's requirement, that we live a perfect life fulfilling the entire law. 
And yet every single one of us will look at our lives and say very readily, I'm I'm not perfect. And we use that as an excuse, but God uses that to say, you're right, you're not perfect. And therefore, what you deserve is my anger and my judgment and eternal damnation. And yet, God has made a way that Jesus Christ has lived a perfect life, and he has done that on behalf of those who cannot. And those who cannot is all of us. And so by faith, if we put our faith in Christ, having lived for us, his perfect life can be counted for us in our place. But he also died a sinner's death, the death that we deserve as a result of our having never lived a perfect life. We deserve to die. We deserve eternal damnation. We deserve hell. And yet Christ has died in our place, taking upon Himself the full weight, the full penalty, the full wrath of God reserved for those who instead of enduring that wrath ourselves, have it poured out on Christ, the Son of God, instead. And as a result of that, His righteous standing before the Father is given to us, and our sinful standing before the Father is punished in Him. And then Jesus was raised from the dead as a confirmation that hell and death are defeated and forever done away with in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the gospel that we want to proclaim to the world, calling men and women by faith to take hold of this truth, to take hold of this reality, to love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their lives and all that they are, that they might live to the glory of God and build the church of God that his kingdom would have no end as he has promised. And we want to do that as the church, and we believe God uses the offices of his church in order to do that. And so we see the responsibility that this office of deacon holds. But what kind of men must they be? Well, we see the first details in Acts 6, but there are even more specific details given to us in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Go there with me, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And if you are using the Blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 992. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So in Acts chapter 6, the apostles said that the deacons were to be men of good repute and full of the spirit and wisdom. They had to be men of good reputation. It was vital that these were men that were within the church and were spoken well of and known as men of good repute within the community. A good name has great value. And in our culture, we've especially learned that lesson over the past few weeks, haven't we? A good name is valuable. Believers need good names if the church of Christ and if the gospel of Jesus Christ is to go forward with credibility. It will not do. It is not okay if a deacon is well spoken of in the church, but sometime uh, for, uh, for legitimate reasons, there will always be illegitimate reasons, but for legitimate reasons that a community outside of believers might speak ill of them. It would hurt the reputation of the entire community of believers for having such a person in a role of leadership. The devil would seize on that opportunity and use it as a way to harm the church. Leaders in the church must be men of good reputation. 
And that means that while a man might fall, we are all sinners. We all do things that we're not proud of and we regret. And so a man may fall. Sometimes that means that they're no longer qualified to serve in leadership in the church. That doesn't mean that they're not forgiven. It doesn't mean that, uh, that Christ doesn't love them. It doesn't mean that the people of God won't receive them. But because of his name and because of his reputation, that matters. And it matters to the church. And sometimes men are disqualified from that office. Brothers and sisters, this is so important, and it's so important that you be praying for your elders and for your deacons regularly for this very reason, for your own good, not just theirs, but for, not just ours, but for your own good. It's, it's for the good of the whole body. It's for the good of the kingdom. And so what does this look like? It looks like men who are honest, men who are, uh, have integrity, men who strive to live holy lives. Men who could be trusted and counted on because they'll be managing the resources of the church and leading others and caring for others in the church. You can't have Judas as a deacon. The man also has to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. It means a man's entire life will be controlled and guided by the Holy Spirit. And, and one evidence of the Spirit's work in the life of a man is that he has wisdom and he acts to make decisions in accordance with that wisdom. Now listen, sometimes deacons have to make decisions that are very, very difficult. Naturally, because of how God has gifted them, they have big hearts, and those hearts want to serve and love others. And when they see someone in need, they feel great compassion for them. But they have to make wise decisions as to whether or not giving is always going to be the best thing. Sometimes giving can be enabling. And that's hard because we want to trust people. We want to help people. We want to do everything we can do to relieve people's suffering, but, but a wise man guided by the Holy Spirit will know that sometimes the ways that we help people is actually hurting them. We want to help people by helping them. And sometimes that means making a hard decision and telling people that what they want is not what they need. Sometimes when people are in bad places, the things they're desperate for are the things that they don't need at all. And it takes wisdom and it takes integrity, and it takes a lot of courage to tell someone that. It's not easy. It takes the Spirit of God working in someone's life. Now, let's think about these requirements briefly in 1 Timothy 3. First, a man must be dignified. That is a man who has serious conduct that is worthy of respect. He's honorable. He's respectable. When someone looks at his life, when someone looks at his character, he's a man that has things put together. Not perfect, not flawless, not without mistakes, not without sin, but a man who is known to be able to organize his life in a well-organized manner. A deacon is a man who is not double-tongued. In other words, he doesn't have a habit of saying one thing to one person, another thing to another person, saying one thing and meaning another, saying one thing and doing another. His word is sincere. Being insincere, being deceitful, would threaten the credibility and the stability of the fellowship of the body of Christ. Our tongues are powerful. The Bible gives so many warnings about the use of our tongue and what we do with them and how serious and how serious it is that we use them well. So we must, not, we, we must only look to men whose yes is yes and whose no is no. He's free from gossip. He's free from lies. He seeks to edify and encourage others with his speech. He must be able to control his tongue. A deacon must not be addicted to much wine. In other words, he's a man who doesn't have a compulsive need for alcohol. He can get through the day without having a need to drink. He's not known. He doesn't have a reputation for someone as someone who can, who can really hold his liquor. He doesn't have a reputation as someone who always has a drink in his hand. It, if and when he does drink, if, that, if he does that, he does so with, with self-control understanding that the gift of wine is to be handled with care, to be handled with responsibility. It is not something to be reckless with. It is not something to be loose with. He must be prepared to serve and lead in service, requiring him at all times in life to act with self-control. 
A deacon must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Deacons especially who are charged with the oversight of the resources of the church. So you can't, you can't have a man who is beset with greed. greed. Greed is actually, the Bible tells us, that is one of the characteristics of a false teacher. But those in the church cannot be marked by greed because especially for a deacon, he will be in places where he might be tempted to steal or to take advantage of the circumstances for his own personal gain to the detriment of the church. Now, we work to remove that temptation as much as possible, but on some level, we have to be able to trust people. And so, a deacon must be one who works for the well-being of the church and not himself because his fear of God is much higher than his desire for personal gain. Now, of course, this should be true of every Christian, but especially for the deacon. A deacon must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The upright character and conduct of a deacon can only be sustained by continual faithfulness to the Christian faith. Deacons must know and trust God's plan of salvation and hold wholeheartedly to the truth of God's Word. Now, as within any local church, a deacon must fully embrace that church's confession of faith. If he is to lead, he has to be able to lead with a, a clear conscience that he is in full support of the doctrine and teaching of that local church. Now, to be a member of this local church, the only real requirement is that a person has a credible profession of faith, that they are Christians. But if someone wants to teach Sunday school, then they need to embrace uh, more than just uh, being credible Christians. They need to hold to much of what we teach and believe as a church. There may be some things that they may not hold in the same way, and, and that could be okay depending on what the circumstances are. But for one to be a leader in the church, for one to be an elder or a deacon, they must wholeheartedly affirm the church's confession as an apt summary of what we believe is taught in the Scriptures. Likewise, that means there are no discrepancies between his profession of faith and the life that he lives. He won't be exposed as a hypocrite. While deacons differ in, their, in, in a way from, the way that they differ mainly from elders is that, uh, is that they are not called on to be apt to teach. Deacons don't need to be capable teachers, but they do need to be capable of encouraging others with the gospel because think of what their role is. They have a role to those who are poor, those who are sick, those who are suffering, and how are they going to encourage them? They need to be able to encourage them with the gospel, giving sound biblical counsel as needed, particularly as they minister to those with physical needs. And so their understanding of the Scripture and God's will for godly living must be sound. He must be a spiritually mature man. In order to serve as a deacon, a man must be tested first and prove himself blameless. Now, of course, blameless in the text here does not mean sinless. We've already talked about that. But he does need to live a life marked by continually, uh, continually repenting of sin and not living a reckless life. In order to discern this, Paul tells us a season of testing is necessary. His life and his reputation and his ability to serve in the capacity of a deacon, making sound decisions, making himself available to serve others must be clear to the church. This, of course, must take place before a man is ordained to the office of deacon. And that's something for the entire church to be involved in. That's why we as a church have a season for that. We have a time where we announce these are men that are coming forward that we are putting before you as possible deacons, but we need to take time as a church to examine them and make sure they meet these qualifications, make sure they are, are credible in their professions of faith, in the service that they render, in the things that they do. We need to examine them and make sure that they are truly matching up with the qualifications of Scripture. Paul continues, he said, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The wives of deacons must be women who are reverent and worthy of respect. They're not gossips. They're not slanderers. They have self-control. The wife of a deacon 
if he is to be qualified, must not be a woman whose reputation is that of a busybody. Elders and deacons are privileged to know a lot of things about a lot of people's lives, and sometimes that means that our wives know some things more than maybe others in the church do. Not everything, but sometimes they will. And so if one of our wives is going to be a gossip or a busybody, nobody can be trusted in leadership. Nobody. That's not safe for the church's unity. That is not healthy for any body. A deacon must also be the husband of one wife. One other way to say this is that he is, the husband, uh, he is a one-woman man. He doesn't have more than one wife, and that probably isn't a big deal in our culture, but it certainly was in the first century. It certainly is in other parts of the world. So he can only have one wife, but he has to be faithful to that wife that he has. Deacons should be known not just as married men. Big deal. A lot of us are married men not just as a married man, but if, if they're married, and they don't have to be married, that's not a requirement, but if they're married, that they, that they are not just husbands, but they're, they're husbands who truly love and care for their wives and lead and protect their wives and, and live with them in a loving, patient, understanding way. And it is very clear to everyone around that that man loves his wife and he cares for his wife. Along those same lines, a deacon must manage his children and his own household well. This doesn't mean necessarily that his children, if he has them, will be believers, especially uh, younger children. But it means that they are leading their home in such a way that their children, if they have them, are obedient to them. And they follow the discipline and instruction that's given to them. Now listen, kids can be difficult. I understand that. I have a few. If they're not converted, they can be even more difficult. Our expectations of what this looks like need to be managed. But at the very least, a man who is leading his home well will be respected by his children, whether they're Christians or not. The stereotype that that pastors and deacons are going to have unruly children is unbiblical. It is wrong. We should not laugh about that. We should not be distracted from leading the church by having homes that are not led well. The reality of ministry and being in leadership is that oftentimes we are away from the home. And if we're leading our homes well, they will be together when we get back and not thrown into disarray into a bunch of pieces. We need to lead well, and if we don't, we're not ready to lead a church. Lastly, Paul offers an encouraging word, because you get to the end of all of those requirements. And I know when I read the requirements for the office of pastor, I am with the Apostle Paul wholeheartedly when he says, who in the world, who is capable of these things? Who is sufficient to do all of these things? Well, he offers some encouragement. He says, for those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. These men will be highly regarded in the congregation. And such high respect should not be their motivation, but it can function as an encouragement for men to fulfill what they've been called to do, that they might fully dedicate themselves to doing the work that they've been called to with confidence. They are officers of the church. They ought to see themselves as officers of the church. They ought to be respected as officers of the church. And when all of these things come together, alongside the ministry being provided by the pastors and elders of the church, God is pleased to strengthen and and to give greater love and unity to the body of Christ and give her greater effectiveness in reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, having seen the establishment and the purpose and the duties of those who are called by God as men of good repute, we have with us this morning two men, Josh Austin and Andrew McKeever, these two men whom the church has called and examined and today will install and ordain as deacons of Redeemer Baptist Church. But first, as a church, we need to be reminded. We need a charge. What are our responsibilities toward these men? And so here's the charge to us as the church. And I say us because I am included in this. 
First, above all else, as the church, we must pray for those who are called to lead and serve. Appointing a man to any office in the church is to no avail if he and his family are unsupported by our prayers. Pray for Josh. Pray for Andrew. Pray for their leadership in their homes as the chief leaders and teachers of their wives and children. Pray for their purity in heart and their purity of thought and word and deed, keeping alert to all of the temptations of the evil one. Pray for confidence and wisdom as each of them uses opportunities given to them by God to make known the glorious truth of the gospel. Pray for their eyes to be focused always looking for opportunities to lead the congregation to love and serve our neighbors. Pray for any unbelief that keeps them from looking daily to the cross for joy in the all-sufficient, all-satisfying supremacy of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we must support Josh and Andrew as servants of the church. And as they serve, you likewise should look for opportunities to serve them and their families. Sometimes when someone is is committed to serving others and they're called to that specific task, others can forget that we have a responsibility to do that same thing onto them, to return the blessing. We need to be aware of that tendency and work to make sure that they are also being served well by the body of Christ. We walk this journey of faith together, and so we cannot be uh, lackadaisical in our encouragement and our hospitality and our deeds of service and love toward them. And thirdly, and lastly, as a charge to the church, we must follow the leadership of Josh and Andrew as men called and appointed to the diaconate, as men who are capable of leading and mercy and fulfilling the duties and obligations of this office of deacon Much is required of the church in way of trusting them and following their leadership alongside our two other deacons. And so those are our charge, to pray for them, to encourage and bless them, and to follow them. It's a charge to Redeemer Baptist Church, and may God give us the grace to fulfill that calling in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so now we charge Josh and Andrew. Andrew, if you'll come sit up here with Josh. And each of you, we pray, will take to heart the following charge. Brothers, be dignified. Recognize the seriousness of purpose in all that you do as a deacon and as men of God, and be keenly aware of the lasting effects of your conduct as believers in Jesus Christ, as leaders in the ministry of mercy. Do not take your service to this office lightly. Do not be double-tongued. Be sincere men of your word. Let your no be no. Let your yes be yes. Do not strive to be pleasers of men, but faithful servants of God. At times, this will cause great distress, division, hardship, trials in your life, but it is far greater to be faithful to God than to be exalted by men. Brothers, do not be given to any addiction of any kind. Continue to work and to strive to stir greater and greater affections for Jesus Christ above all things that this world has to offer. And while you are free in Christ to enjoy great liberties as believers, do not allow those liberties that you have to enslave you so that you're no longer free. Brothers, don't be greedy for dishonest gain. In all that you do in your work, in the church, in your home, do it honestly. Set your hearts on making much of Jesus in all things, bringing glory to the Father who is in heaven through the power of the Holy Spirit, and recognize that you have a gift from God to be used for the purposes of God. Brothers, hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Press on in your study of sound doctrine. Give continual obedience to God's truth as revealed in the Scriptures. Take every opportunity you have to proclaim the truth of God's Word in deed and in grace and in truth. You are great students of the Word, both of you. Do not grow slothful in your zeal for God's Word. 
Brothers, keep yourselves as the husband of one wife. Be one woman men who lead your households well. Speak well of your wives to others. Pray for her. Teach her. Lead her. Consult her and listen to her insights. Live with her in an understanding way. And in all ways, strive to be great visible representations of Christ's relationship to the church in this world, that he would be exalted and honored in that relationship that you hold so dear. Brothers, in all of this, you will gain a good standing for yourself and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. With joy, we celebrate this day with you for what God is doing in your lives and will continue to do in your lives and what he is doing in the life of the church. Ultimately, though, today we celebrate what this means to the glory of God. One of the primary writers of our confession of faith was a man by the name of Nehemiah Cox. And Cox once preached at a deacon ordination, much like today, and these are the words that he closed with. He said this, You deacons have a trust committed to you, namely, the alms and contributions of the church, which are indeed a kind of hallowed or dedicated things. And this is a considerable trust. Yea, the poor members of Christ, which are dear to him, are the apple of his eye, are committed to your care, so far as concerns their relief and succor in outward things, and this is a great trust. You are stewards for the church, yea, stewards for Christ. And it is required of a steward that he be found faithful. Consider, therefore, the duty of your position and make conscious of a faithful discharge thereof and as knowing you must give an account to Christ who has appointed you to this service and with him there is no respect of persons. So brothers, let's press onward and upward together for the glory of God and we trust your leadership. And we trust that your leadership will, will continue on to make us better, to make us stronger, to make us a more healthy, unified, and godly church as you lead us to be servant-hearted people. So brothers, if you will come be seated up here, and I'll ask the other uh, pastor, elders, deacons to come forward as well as we lay hands on and pray for these brothers. Uh, we want to... Give Josh and Andrew certificates of ordination. This is, you know, the Bible says it's official when we lay hands and pray for you, but everyone loves a certificate to hang on the wall. So there you go. Uh, but we're thankful for these brothers and, and trust that the Lord will give us all the grace and, um, and remind us of, of the call that we have, the charge that we've been given to, uh, to pray for these men, to be a blessing to these men as well, and to follow their leadership in the diaconate.